Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Every Tribe, Every Tear, The Healing of the Nations, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 29th, 2007. There are 66 books in the Christian Bible, none of which has provoked more controversy, esoteric speculation, or misunderstanding than the very last one, Revelation. In the 4th century, notable scholars like Chrysostom and Eusebius even hesitated to include Revelation in the canon. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther described it as, quote, neither apostolic nor prophetic. My spirit cannot accommodate itself to this book, and so I stick to the books which present Christ to me clearly and purely. John Calvin wrote commentaries on every book in the New Testament except Revelation. And today, among Eastern Orthodox believers, Revelation is the only book that they don't read in their public liturgy. Apocalyptic literature like Revelation is difficult to decipher, even for careful readers. As a genre of writing that flourished from about 200 B.C. until 200 A.D. among both Jews and Christians, apocalyptic literature is characterized by visions, symbols, numerology, beasts, and even sea monsters. Even a biblically illiterate person, for example, knows that 666 portends something ominous. But what, for example, does a gigantic red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns mean? Revelation 12.3. Or all of Revelation's cosmic calamities. Others complain that Revelation is too negative about the present earthly world, and too focused on a future heavenly world. But you might think differently if Roman emperors like Nero or Domitian had slaughtered your family, or if today Janjaweed militia in Darfur had raped your women, strafed your village with jets, and then burned it to the ground. For people like this, hell has come to earth, and therein, I think, lies one key to making sense of Revelation. In contrast to rich, white Christians in the West, poor Christians in Latin America, Asian, and Africa know all too well about corrupt dictators, mass displacements, starvation from forced famines, ethnic wars, political repression, crushing debt, and grinding poverty. They read the apocalyptic themes of a book like Revelation as directly relevant to their everyday lives. Divine intervention, healing, liberation, dreams, visions, miracles, and prophecies, for these people are lived realities, not myths to deconstruct. And so, whether in ancient Rome or in modern Zimbabwe, the book of Revelation articulates the longing of people for God to intervene in human history and to make right all the many wrongs that we experience. Revelation 6.10 asks, How long, O Lord, 
until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. In Revelation, the Roman Empire embodies and epitomizes all the forces of social violence, political imperialism, religious persecution, economic exploitation, and cultural hubris that wreak so much destruction in history. It's not clear which emperor ruled when John wrote from his banishment to the rocky island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea, but he nevertheless excoriates Rome as what he calls Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes in the city of power, Revelation 17, 5 and 18, verse 10. John sees Rome as the stage where the human drama unfolds among what he calls in chapter 6, 15, verse 15, the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man. Because of her many crimes against humanity, Revelation predicts divine judgment for Rome. In chapter 18, verses 16 to 20, for example, we read, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Furthermore, in Revelation, Rome is not only the literal ancient empire. By extension and comparison, it also represents all domination systems that are organized around power, wealth, seduction, intimidation, and violence. In whatever historical form it takes, Empire is the opposite of the kingdom of God as disclosed in Jesus. And so we rightly ask not only why ancient Rome incurred God's judgment, but also what places and powers today constitute imperial Romes and so face a similar fate. Revelation thus warns us about a dramatic reversal in human history because of divine justice. In a biblical version of what goes around comes around, we read in chapter 18, verse 6, that God will give back to Rome as she has given. He will, quote, pay her back double for what she has done, mix her a double portion from her own cup. Revelation also anticipates a comprehensive restoration rooted in divine mercy. In this regard, it tracks with St. Paul's remarks about the redemption of the entire cosmos by a God who was, quote, the father of every family in heaven and on, on earth. Ephesians 1, 14 to 15, and Romans 8, 19 to 22. The biblical story 
that began in Genesis with a fall in a garden ends in Revelation with a restoration in a city. The narrative travels from Eden to the New Jerusalem. On the last page of the Bible, John describes this plot fulfillment as what he calls the healing of the nations. And he imagines nations from around the world streaming to the holy city. In this week's text, we read how divine mercy in the New Jerusalem heals all the human degradations of ancient Rome. We read in chapter 7, 16 to 17, Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. In the New Jerusalem, where all the nations gather, there will be no death, no mourning, no crying, or any pain. 21 verse 4. Although in a few places John refers to the large but limited number of 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, he ultimately expands the scale and scope of the cosmic consummation to include what he calls a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Chapter 7, verse 9. This notion of a limitless ethno-linguistic inclusion is sounded several times in the book of Revelation. We see it in chapter 5, verse 9, chapter 11, verse 9, chapter 13, verse 7, and chapter 14, verse 6. Every tribe, every tear. I recently read about a tribe of 350 people called the Paraha. Buried deep in a Brazilian rainforest, the Paraha have fascinated cultural anthropologists and especially ling linguists. Their language is based upon just eight consonants and three vowels. And according to Dan Everett, one of a very few people who have mastered their language, the Paraha have no numbers, no fixed color terms, no perfect tense, no deep memory, no tradition of art or drawing, and no words for all, each, every, most, or few. But we can say with confidence that the every tribe and every tier of revelation includes the Paraha as readily as it does ancient Rome or modern America. Every tribe, every tier, the healing of the nations. And now for further reflection. How do you explain the wild success of the Left Behind series about the end times with its sales of 60 million books. Number two, can you think of modern day imperial Romes? Number three, in what sense is empire, Rome or otherwise, the opposite of the kingdom of God as disclosed in Jesus? Number four, do we too easily dismiss apocalyptic literature as bizarre and void of practical applications? 
And number five, what do third world Christians have to teach first world believers about reading the Bible? For books this week, I review Seven Sins for a Life Worth Living by Roger Housden, New York, Harmony Books, 2005, 205 pages. Well, chalk one up for the marketing department. When I saw this catchy title at her public library, I took the bait. Not that I'm sorry I read the book, but I was hoping for something more substantial given the promising table of contents. The seven sins worth living for are what Housden calls the pleasures of enjoying the beauty of the five senses, being foolish, not knowing, not being perfect, doing nothing useful, being ordinary, and coming home. The good news, says Housden, is that no upgrades are needed to live this way. That if we can learn to be present in the moment and to be present to each other, quote, life is already enhanced enough as it is, end quote. And so his stated purpose in Seven Sins for a Life Worth Living is to remind us, as a friend once put it, lighten up, you'll be dead for a long time. Our readiness to follow our culture's cues, though, lead us astray. We pride ourselves on being important, busy, and driven, developing personas that deep down we intuit are at best superficial and perhaps even phony. If you ask most anyone, they would agree that a new car, an inbox stuffed with hundreds of emails, or a better address do not ultimately provide a deep sense of satisfaction. But truth be told, that's not how we live. Religion, too, comes in for heavy criticism in Housden's view because it generates guilt and all sorts of inhibitions. In selected portions of the book, Housden shares from his own life how he's developed a more centered self that honors the inner journey as much or more than the outer journey. And throughout the book, he sprinkles trenchant aphorisms regarding life lived more joyfully, more playfully, more fully. When you die, goes one piece of advice, God and the angels will hold you accountable for all the pleasures you were allowed in life that you denied yourself. Learning to be at home in the world and at home with yourself is no easy task. But Housden might get you started. Roger Housden, Seven Sins for a Life Worth Living. New York, Harmony Books, 2005. For film this week, I review the documentary, The U.S. vs. John Lennon, 2006. Today, the Dixie Chicks and Bono speak their political minds but this period piece on John Lennon makes them look tepid by comparison. Everyone remembers John Lennon as a musical genius, but beyond music making, he crafted a savvy and principled political persona that found its reason for being in protesting the Vietnam War. 
a war in which 58,000 Americans died and 2 million Vietnamese. The soundtrack will bring goosebumps to baby boomers, as will the archival footage of the war in Southeast Asia and protests back at home. The cast of characters, including Jerry Rubin, Abby Hoffman, Angela Davis, and Bobby Seale, and Yoko Ono's retrospective reflections. Only the last third of this documentary deals with the film's title, which was the five-year effort of the Nixon administration and the Immigration and Naturalization Service to deport Lenin, along with the harassment and intimidation of J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. In the end, Lenin won permanent residency after Nixon's landslide victory in 1972. And when a reporter asked if he bore any grudges, Lenin replied with his quick wit, No, I believe that time wounds all heals. This film wanders in ways both good and bad, and is better at documenting the pervasive cultural turmoil than the specific legal case against Lenin but it makes you wonder where serious political protest has gone. The U.S. versus John Lennon from the year 2006. For poetry this week, we've posted a poem called The Child Dying by Edwin Murr, 1887 to 1959. Edwin Murr was a poet and critic born in Deerness, Orkney Island, Scotland. The Child Dying Unfriendly, friendly universe, I pack your stars into my purse and bid you so farewell, that I can leave you, quite go out, go out, go out beyond all doubt, my father says is the miracle. You are so great, and I so small. I am nothing, you are all. Being nothing, I can take this way. Oh, I need neither rise nor fall, for when I do not move at all, I shall be out of all your day. It said some memory will remain in the other place, grass in the rain, light on the land, sun on the sea, a flitting grace, a phantom face, but the world is out. There is not place where it and its ghosts can ever be. Father, Father, I dread this air blown from the far side of despair, the cold, cold corner. What house, what hold, what hand is there? I look and see nothing filled eternity, and the great round world grows weak and old. Hold my hand, oh, hold it fast, I am changing, until at last my hand in yours no more will change. Though yours change on, you here, I there, so hand in hand, twin-leafed despair. I did not know death was so strange. Edwin Moore, The Child Dying. 
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, April 29th, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.